Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Never Ready. This is Stephen Robles. We're back from being on the road. Yes, sir. One of the hardest, best weeks in life. <laughs> Amazing. Hardest, best. Even Brother Stephen. I, I saw Brother Stephen b- break a sweat for the first Listen. time in life. Nor- <laughs> normally, he's living that high life behind the desk telling everybody what to do in that, in that mega church world. Just doing emails. You had to come with us, bro, and hit that labor. Listen. Pulling them boxes out the bus, setting up them screens. Man, I, we, I landed in Louisville. And uh, I texted you. I said, "Should I, you know, am I going to go to the whatever hotel, or should I come right to the venue?" You're exactly. Like, come on, brother. He said, <laughs> "Should I do I go on to that five star?" I said, "Nah, brother. This ain't that kind of trip." No. And brother Troy looked at me. He said, "What you doing? You sitting up here? <laughs> Let's get on it. Get with it. Said, All right then." So we were hitting that thing hard, <laughs> man. We, but we, we, f- we fulfilled a vision, right, babe? It was great. It was fantastic. Just it was crazy. Write the vision. Make it plain. Write the vision. Make it plain. We did our first mm-hmm. video podcast, and those are going to be coming out soon. Oh. And we're actually waiting for uh, Brett Kunkel to come in. You guys had a confusing, you couldn't figure out who we were interviewing today. Well, you've, you've said the name Greg Kunkel, and I think even uh, Elisa Childers, when we were up in Nashville, she mentioned him too. That's the tactics book. Yes, yes, stand a reason. Right. And, and this is not Greg Kunkel, this is Brett <laughs> nope, Kunkel. That ain't him. And I asked, are they related? <laughs> exactly. And I was like, no, no relation at all. Well, However, <laughs> Brett Kunkel worked for Greg Kunkel for many years. Oh, man. And <laughs> Nerva pulled out this tactics book like she was ready to ask all these deep questions. She was like, I'm ready to go, y'all. I said, wrong guy. <laughs> you didn't tell me. Kunkel. Yes. Two different guys. Kunkel. So, so we uh, totally know this guy from Impact. Yes. Impact He's 360. Awesome. Here's his Skype username. You can go ahead and call him in there, Steven. Well, and, uh, we're going to get Brett Kunkel on the, on the Lizine soon. He's coming up. Well, we're so grateful to have Brett Kunkel on the Free Mind episode this week. Thanks so much for coming, Brett. Oh, so glad to uh, join you for this conversation. Yeah, so me and Nerva have had the privilege of uh, getting to do ministry with you at Impact 360 over the past few years, and I love, uh, I, don't, I hope this isn't giving away too much, but one of my favorite things of the whole camp, So, and if you have high school students, I would highly, highly, highly recommend this camp, but Brett comes in, I think, usually night two and, and role plays as an atheist. I don't know if you want to call it a massacre, but it's a <laughs> these, these kids. It's so awesome. Are usually massacre, it's right, babe? Yes, it's great. We're on the edge of our seats watching, and it's this the interaction is. Awesome. And some of them don't even know that it's role play because they kind of introduce them like, "Hey, we got this atheist guy. We want to come in and, and speak to you guys, so be polite." And usually they don't. Uh, they're not polite for very long, but um, <laughs> you kind of get them. You kind of get them riled up. To get spirited. Yes. And then you make them grade themselves. That's right. That's the whole goal is to get them riled up, is to see h- how would they do in a conversation with an unbeliever, particularly mm-hmm. one who uh, might kind of come after their beliefs, who uh, holds a different, radically different views. You know, there is no God. And then uh, then to spend some time reflecting, okay, how did, if that was a real conversation with a real atheist, how would I have done? Yeah, and then I love they they end up you 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 have them grade themselves on how did you do intellectually? Almost always, I can't remember if it's a number system or or a letter system you give them, but I think they almost always give themselves a D minus, and usually that's being kind. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, they they always rate themselves as an F. <laughs> oh, really? I'll, I'll do a scale of one to ten. Ten meanings you owned the atheist. Oh yeah, that's uh, right. One, no doubt. You know, one means you, the atheist owns you, and uh, it's always like two or three. Yeah, right. I typically get around the 30, 30%, which um, they recognize as a failure. But then I tell them, hey, um, I, I am I'm glad that you failed in here mm-hmm. with me rather than out there on the college campus in your dorm room, somewhere where you're by yourself, where then this whole encounter would really shake your faith. And uh, that's that's part of the, the 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 reason we do that is just to 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 build some motivation to like really think carefully about hey what do we believe why do we believe it do I know my faith very well can I can I articulate for the cause of the you know art, or articulate it for the cause of the gospel for sure and you know that's one of the things we try to tell people on this podcast if you're not preparing your students for college you're just basically putting them on a battlefield with no armor at all and and I think that even kind of connects to your experience right because when you went to college you kind of were hit with that pretty early on at a, at a community college is that correct yeah I grew up in the church I spent the first 18 years of my life in the church and I was one of those. I, I was one of those serious church kids, like any 
program that was, you know, going on for children or youth. I was there. Um, I was a student leader in my youth ministry. My junior year in, in high school, I I kind of made a public commitment to go into full-time ministry. You know, I was like that kid, like that kid you want in your youth group. And my freshman year in college, I have a, a, a class, Philosophy 101, mm. with Professor David Lane, and he just spent that semester dismantling my faith. Wow. And it that just set me spinning. It's uh, just introduced just some overwhelming doubt, and uh, and I, that I had to overcome. And uh, but it was a wake up call, a real wake up call for me. So up to that point, um, before taking your philosophy class, had you ever struggled with doubt, or were you pretty confident up to that point? I think I was. Uh, I think I would mark the first eighteen years as pretty confident. Uh, I had I was blessed to be in some really good churches, mm. and uh, especially during my junior high and high school years, we were at a great church in Southern California. I had a youth pastor who was a huge mentor. So, in terms of my experience of the church and uh, and the the life of the body and just serving, we had a, we were part of a vibrant you know church with authentic people and. Uh, so all of that, I think, helped build kind of the experiential side for me, mm-hmm. that I, I, I saw Christianity, authentic faith, lived out in very real and powerful ways. And so there was the confidence on that side. Uh, and what I was lacking was the intellectual confidence. Mm-hmm. I just had never been grounded in the knowledge side of it. And so when the PhD comes around uh, and you know attacks it intellectually, I'm not ready. And, uh, and then, you know, what, with the experiential side, you know, the, 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 the PhD, the professor is able to dismiss that like, well, that's, you know, that's just kind of part of every religious, uh, community. So you could be a Christian and have that experiential side, or you could be a Buddhist and have that experiential mm-hmm. side. You could be a Mormon or a Hindu or a Muslim. So that's not unique to Christianity. Uh, and so it um, it really, you know, kind of actually took out not only the intellectual side, but it also really kind of helped me or caused me to question the experiential side of it as well. That's good. And, and I think that's probably a good place for us to start, Brett, is um, maybe defining faith and doubt and then talking about the different types of doubt. Because you, you do a talk on that at Impact 360 that I think is so helpful. And there's many confusions in our culture about what faith is. And, and even people in the church we tend to think that it's kind of a blind leap into the dark or it's something you just choose directly and you can either have the strength to choose it or you don't, but we don't understand how it connects with um, evidence and, and, and thinking and knowledge and all those items. So maybe could you explain to us what biblical faith is and, and what doubt is and how we can work through that in a healthy way? Yeah, so biblical faith, generally speaking, is trusting in what you have good reason to believe is true. Uh, and you see this throughout the scripture. There's, there's, the scripture never contrasts faith with evidence and reason uh, and rationality. Mm. It will, it will, it only contrasts faith with sight. But uh, you'll see, you know, Jesus in the life of Jesus, he will often say something to the effect of, you know, so you know to the the audience he's talking about, uh, talking to, so that you know, here, here you go, I'll perform a miracle. Um, and oftentimes questions and, and doubts, uh, a lack of faith, uh, the way that Jesus and, and the gospel writers and Paul, they respond to that stuff with, with evidence and and rationality and reasonableness. So faith is just trusting in what you have good reason to believe is true. I mean, if you think about the the Hebrews 11 passage, right? Hebrews 11, 1, it lays out uh, faith. Of course, the, the whole book is uh, a huge book on faith. But, you know, faith is the, the assurance or the uh, evidence of things unseen. And so there's a connection, biblically speaking, with uh, reason and evidence and our faith. And we just, it's kind of like, you know, any relationship you have, if you think about it, uh, your faith in an individual is 
intricately tied to your knowledge of that person, the evidence you've gained about their character and who they are. I mean, think about a marriage relationship. Um, you know, it's built on the, the, the strength of our faith or our trust in a spouse is built on the years of evidence that we've accumulated. So, you know, I've been married for 22 years. Um, if I've over those 22 years had kind of gathered some evidence that my wife was had questionable character or, you know, um, was dishonest, uh, would, was not reliable, those kind of things, those would weaken my faith. That evidence would weaken my faith or my trust in her. Uh, so that's, that's biblical faith. And it's, it's just throughout scripture. In fact, if you think about it, Paul says in first Corinthians 15, he says, if Jesus doesn't, didn't rise from the dead, kind of verse 12 through 19, he, he's laying out this argument that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then he says, your faith is worthless. Mm. He doesn't say, well, keep believing or just, just have more faith or, you know, kind of hope against hope. No, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, if this faith is not connected to this, you know, uh, historical event, this this historical reality, then it's worthless. It throw it out. Um, you're, you're to be pitied. So uh, that's the biblical picture of faith. I love that, and I think that's so helpful that you say faith is opposed to sight in the Bible, but not knowledge, not rationality. And, you know, even examples like Abraham, when he went out not knowing where he was going, it was because he knew who God was because God had shown his faithfulness through activities that's over time. And I love that. But um, one one kind of common uh story that's appealed to that you'll hear about is, is doubting Thomas. And, you know, when Jesus said, you know, Thomas said, I won't believe in, until I see it for myself. And Jesus says, stick your hands in the side. And he said, you believe because you've seen, but so much better for those who've believed without seeing. How does that connect with, with the definition of faith as confidence for what we have good reason to believe? Does that negate that idea at all to you? Uh, no, I think you've got to take the full biblical picture and look at the, the, the whole context of scripture. So even be, before, uh, you know, Thomas, you have, uh, you know, John the Baptist, who, who gets to baptize Jesus, uh, has this incredible experience. But of course, when he goes through difficult things uh, in Matthew chapter 11, he's in prison, he's, he's doubting. He's at doubting whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. Um, and what does Jesus do? Jesus appeals to the evidence of his miracles. Uh, throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus doing that. Uh, you see the early disciples, um, uh, like like Paul in Acts chapter seventeen, it talks about as his you know as his custom, he would go in and he would uh, go into the synagogue. He would reason with the Jews, and it says that he provided uh, you know uh, evidence. Um, and so, uh, given the whole context of Scripture. I think you have a very clear case that can be made. I mean, that we're even commanded. There's a command in 1 Peter 3.15 to give a reason for the hope uh, that, we, that we have. So it's, again, that, that's where there's a contrast, I think, with um, Thomas there is, is it's the sight. Right. It's, not, it's not the evidence, but it's the sight. There are those, right, coming behind Thomas who don't get to see the uh the the nail piercings in jesus's hands and, and feet right uh thus those of us in the 21st century and i think um uh th that's the uh what what jesus is talking about there but he's not he's not offering a a anti-intellectual anti-evidence picture of faith there when you look at the whole picture of scripture it just fills that out and helps us to understand what what does jesus mean when he says something like that Right. No, I think that's helpful because I, I think that is what people tend to do with that passage, that they extend it past what he actually says to include all of rationality and all evidence as though it's an anti-intellectual leap. But like you said, that runs against everything we see in the whole scripture about faith. And so that, that's helpful. Part of part of that particular passage is, is Thomas saying, you know, he makes the statement, unless I see the nail marks, mm. right? Unless I put my hand in his side, that I'm not going to believe. Uh, and so that, that, that's kind of, that, and that, that 
you could say is a um, uh, that that's the other s- maybe the other side of it where it's an ir- yeah, an unreasonable skepticism. Mm. You know, uh, where you, we we actually don't have to put our hands and our fingers where the nails were today in the 21st century to still be justified and to be rational and to be reasonable, uh, you know, to put our faith in Jesus. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And sorry, I'm dominating the conversation here, y'all. But just the other day, uh, Elisa Childers was talking with Lisa Gunger on the Unbelievable podcast. And one of the things Lisa brought up, she said, well, you can't know that he rose because you weren't there. And that idea that um, knowledge of any history requires being there is just obviously false um that would yeah. render all historical knowledge uh leaps of faith yeah well i i can't even know that uh lisa and elisa did a podcast because i wasn't there exactly <laughs> right yeah. you know Thank right you. that's, that's helpful that you don't actually have to have been there in history to actually have justification and in some cases meet the bar of knowledge and i think in the resurrection we have one of those cases so um after talking about faith uh why don't you give us doubt and then i know you talk you talk about the the varieties of doubt which was very helpful for me in my own journey because i i discovered that i had well i, I won't jump ahead i'll just let you <laughs> jump in and, and and describe that a little bit yeah, well, if we if we're looking at a, a kind of a definition, get some clarity on what doubt is. Doubt would just be uncertainty about God, uh, broadly speaking. And and I think if we're going to be honest, this is where it's really helpful for people in the church to be honest about this and to say the vast majority of us have experienced that. We've experienced uncertainty in our relationship with God uh, on a number of different levels. So when I have the college professor begin dismantling my faith intellectually, I went through a season of doubt and being feeling uncertain about whether or not God was real, this Christianity stuff was true. There was some uncertainty there. Um, and as I talk to you know Christians around the country, I would say 99.5% will admit that they've experienced that uncertainty. And, and, and then when you look through the pages of Scripture, and this is the one thing I love about Scripture, it just it has the ring of truth when you read these accounts and these stories of people. I mean, they're just real people, right? Yeah. And so many people in the Scriptures struggle with uncertainty about God. Uh, all the way starting, you know, starting with Adam and Eve, starting uh, with uh, Abraham and Moses and David and these great saints of the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, uh, John the Baptist, the disciples, uh, Peter, Thomas, uh, you know, all these guys. And so it it's, you know, for those who struggle with doubt, I just I I. I think it's important to recognize, well, that's something that you're not alone in. We all experience that doubt. Now, what I think is really helpful to do, though, is to think and reflect upon the nature of the doubt and and the source of the doubt. Because I think over the years, what I've discovered is that all doubt doesn't come from the same source. And, um, And here's where I make a distinction between, I think, three primary sources of doubt. The first one would be intellectual. And I think that's really what I wrestled with when I was in college and I had that college professor who challenged me. He challenged me intellectually. He was going after the intellectual foundations of the faith. He was saying, hey, there's no evidence for this. Hey, there are biblical contradictions here. And he was chipping away uh, at the intellectual foundations. And so what that that became, uh, the intellect became a source of my doubting, my uncertainty about God. Um, but sometimes what happens is we think that all doubt is intellectual, or we think that, hey, if I can just give an apologetic answer to this person's questions, well, then they're going to stop struggling in their faith. Mm-hmm. And what we find is that when we do give those answers, which we, we should do, but we discover that someone still wrestles with doubt, what that tips us off to is the fact that it might the, the core of their doubt may not be intellectual, even if they first express it intellectually. It might be something uh, else. And so, a second source of doubt we discover is what we might call emotional or psychological doubt, and this is just generated by uh, psychological factors in our lives. Um, you know, we are not just uh, 
you know, brains walking around, but we are, are full human beings who have intellect, but we also have emotion and imagination and uh, a, a rich, deep emotional life. But there's woundedness that comes from living in this world. And from that woundedness, we then sometimes doubt God. And then, uh, and then the third source of doubt is what we might call moral doubt. And we see this one through the scripture. Hey, someone's not questioning God because they have, you know, deep intellectual questions. They're not questioning God because maybe they're, they experience some pain or hurt or woundedness, but really they're questioning God because they don't like his rules. They don't like the, the lifestyle that they think they're supposed to, you know, live by or, or whatever it is. And so, um, they reject God. This is just this is Romans one, right? They suppress the truth and the righteousness. So I would say those are really the three primary sources of doubt. As you travel and teach, do you find that one is more prevalent? Like, it, would it be emotional or? I I think, gosh, I'm not. I, I, it definitely seems to me that the second two sources are the more prevalent sources. So when you get to the core. Kind of when you you're peeling back the onion, so to speak, and you get down to the core, it usually turns out to be emotional doubt okay. or moral doubt. But it often gets expressed first as intellectual doubt, hmm. uh, and sometimes I think they're they're they, you know they're looking for reasons, and so the the intellectual stuff comes out first. But it often is masking the fact that what's going on deeper is the intellectual and moral doubt. I love that you held on and just kind of pursued answers in, in a day and age where so many students walk away from the faith. But getting back to the different kinds of doubt, can you um, help us say, for instance, I have a friend that's having uh, emotional doubt. As a friend, how do I help her? Or I guess give us tips on how to deal with the three doubts if we have people in our lives struggling with those kinds of doubt. Great question. Uh, you, you know, you take you take the doubt as is expressed. So even if someone, even if you have a sus suspicion that someone is, they're hurting kind of emotionally, there's maybe there's a you know, woundedness that they experience from the church uh, or from a church leader or from a parent who is, a, you know, a, a Christian. Uh, but then it's expressed intellectually. I think it's it's helpful to still deal with that intellectual, the intellectual questions that they're bringing up and not just try to say, well, hey, I, I know what your real problem is. Your real problem is that you're just hurt and wounded, right? Yeah. Um, because people need to process it. And what they need to see is that maybe when they, uh, when you begin to answer, you know, you provide some good answers to those questions and then they're not their soul is not satisfied by that, then that opens them up to the possibility that, hey, there's something deeper that's going on. So I would say, first off, if it is expressed intellectually, deal with, deal with some of that. Uh, but then when they, you know, when they express their dissatisfaction with that, that's when you can maybe explore with them, hey, what else is going on? And I think one, you know, a second thing you can do is just, then you just, you ask a lot of questions. Okay. Uh, and then you, and you listen. That has to be accompanied by listening. So you just ask them, hey, what, what is it that you're upset about? Or what is it that really bothers you? And okay, so why does that bo bother you? Why is it that particular issue? Have you seen that, you know, in particular? And you're just asking clarification questions. You're helping them probe because sometimes they're not even aware what's going on underneath the surface. I remember I was talking to an atheist gal. Um, once and she, I could, you could see she's getting upset. In fact, I think that's one thing that tips you off to the fact that the the issue is not merely intellectual. Is that when you start talking about faith or you start talking about God or the church or the Bible, uh, and someone starts getting upset, you see that the emotions rising up. That tips you off that there's an there's an emotional source to this doubt. Mm. And so I saw that starting to build in her. But what she was saying to me was she she rejected Christianity because Christians were the kind of people who impose their views on other people. They force their views on other people. And so we, I, we, I, you know, I, I kind of answered that one kind of in, from an intellectual standpoint. Uh, you know, I said, well, you know, Christians can't, we, you can't actually force your beliefs on someone. 
Um, and we're, we're, we're certainly not holding a gun to someone's head. We're trying to, we're trying to persuade. And that's different than forcing your beliefs. And then she, but she was adamant. She was like, no, you you force your beliefs. And, and I said, well, how so? And then that's when she opened up and she started talking about her personal life. She grew up in a, what she considered a Christian home. It was a seventh day Adventist home. And that was what she associated with Christianity. She was a lesbian. And when she was in high school, her parents had sent her to what's called a change camp. And I don't know all the details of that. I know it's not a a good idea. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You can't send a kid to a camp and change their same-sex attractions. Um, But she had this this horrible experience, experienced some kind of rejection from her parents. She associated that with Christianity. She was hurt. She was wounded. And eventually it came out. And when that came out, we, we... I, I remember um, the, the, some of the other people I was with in this conversation with her. We just we shifted, we shifted, and it was no longer just about answering her questions or trying to debate her. It was really a, to a, just taking time to listen mm-hmm. and asking her more about about that and getting her to open up about that and share some of her hurt. And uh, so I'd say that's a very practical thing you can do is uh, ask questions and then really listen and don't feel like you have to defend God at that point. Mm-hmm. It's okay to let someone express their frustration, being upset with God. It's okay to let someone rage against God a little bit. Uh, I think he can handle that. And I think, uh, you know, you kind of become a container to, to help them. Uh, handle that, right? So you let them kind of pour all that into you without getting all defensive and upset. And and uh, and then you help them process through that. And that takes time. And I think that'd be the other practical thing I would offer when it comes to emotional doubt is it takes time. It's not just one conversation. It's not just two conversations, but it can just, just take time of it could be it could be a year. I mean, some of the woundedness that that people experience is just so deep, and we just need to love on them for a couple of years and help them to kind of you know heal from that. And uh, so, I think those are some of the practical things I, I I would suggest when it comes to emotional doubt. One more question. So, for um, moral doubt, how is that often expressed? Or uh, it it sounds obvious, but like emotional, the story you just told was very clear, but I would have almost confused that with moral doubt. But can you clarify or give an example of what moral doubt looks like? Yeah, so moral doubt is when someone really, uh, they they reject the moral laws of God. Mm. And so often in our culture, I mean, I think that one of the primary issues is sexuality, right? So... Uh, I know somebody who grew up in the church um, and had a good, healthy uh, experience in the church. If you would have saw them in high school, even at the beginning of college, you would have said, oh, yeah, they, they're committed to Christ. They're a follower. Um, but uh, it, this, is, this is someone who, who spent a lot of time in high school and college dating unbelievers, <clears throat> and you could you could see that over time that began to pull him away okay. from God, and eventually he got into a very serious relationship with a non Christian, and he wanted the relationship. He wanted to, and ultimately wanted to live with her and sleep with her. Uh, wanted to engage in you know premarital sex, and so what happened is that he would begin to kind of disappear from church. Gotcha. You wouldn't see him. You wouldn't see him around as much. And then eventually he just walked away totally and then poured himself into this relationship because he wanted the relationship on his terms. He wanted to, you know, you know, he wanted to sleep with his girlfriend. He wanted to live with her. He didn't want to do it God's way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's where you see the, 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 the core source of the doubt then and the unbelief is morality. Uh, and this is what Paul says, Romans 1, 18. The, he says the, 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 you know, God, God is revealed to us in the natural world uh, in verses 19 and 20. But our response is to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so, look, one of the best ways, at least we think, you know, this is our strategy as human beings, but if you want to try and get out from underneath guilt or accountability or moral obligations, 
Well, somehow just deny God. Mm. If, if there is no God, who, who are we accountable to? We're not accountable to anyone. And if I can move away from God, then I, can, I, I give myself the illusion that I can free myself up from uh, you know, moral accountability. And I, I, I then become the one who runs my own life. And so that's, that's what we are, we're looking at when we look at kind of the moral source of doubt. Oh, such a real story. And so walking with a person going through that experience, um, I guess just continue loving on them. How do you advise, um, if, say, if yeah. that's a loved one or a, a dear friend? I think there's a, a few things you do when it comes to moral doubt. A few things that you can do are, number one, again, it, it just t- it takes time. Give it, it time. time. Okay. Be- because sometimes someone's heart is is hard enough that uh, they reject God. They, re- they, they will reject any of the intellectual resources you offer, the evidence for God. I mean, in fact, that when I'm thinking about uh, this friend of mine, he, when I first approached him and, and kind of confronted him on some of this stuff, what he started doing was raising intellectual objections, mm. and uh, and that and actually they were they were they were fairly weak intellectual objections, and as I answered them, you know uh, he still wasn't he wasn't satisfied, and so we 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 got to talk about well what, is there another another source here? So again, it takes some time to work through that. At first, someone might come with all the intellectual stuff. They're not typically they're not going to start off by saying, well, you know, I just really don't like. God's laws. I don't want to obey him. I kind of want to, you know, so what they end end up starting with are the typical, Hey, here are the objections I have towards it. Uh, but then sometimes, you know, that hard heartedness, you just have to wait till God breaks it down. And this is where I think we can trust in the, the knowledge that scripture gives us because you know, what, what Paul says in Galatians chapter six is he says, he says, don't be deceived, right? God is not mocked for whatever a man sows mm. that he will also reap. Yeah. So we can trust, and this is where Christians need to understand that is a statement, that is a statement of truth and knowledge. Like this is a truth of the universe that God has created. You will reap what you sow eventually. And so the person who is sowing to sexual sin they're going to reap the consequences of that. It might not be the first time, the second time, but eventually they're going to experience those consequences. So sometimes what we have to do is we just have to keep loving people. We, we continue to be in relationship with them, even though we, we may distance ourselves maybe from them in terms of the, you know, the, their moral lifestyle. But we still love them. Uh, we let them know we're always there for them because we can count on the fact that if they continue to live in disobedience to God, they're not going to flourish. Mm. And reality is going to take its toll on them. And th- th- it, might, it might take them getting beat up by reality for a while before they're open mm. to returning back to God. And I want to be the kind of friend who's waiting for oh, them that's so good. when you know they kind of get to the bottom of the barrel, when they, when they reach that, that point where they are now ready to say, okay, I, I need God. And, uh, and so again, that, that takes time. Uh, but throughout it, uh, even though we're, we're, we're waiting patiently, we're loving them, I'd say also one of the ways we love them is we speak the truth to them, right? Uh, that's actually one of the best ways that my wife loves me. <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> sometimes that's the way I love Seth. <laughs> <laughs> my wife yeah, loves me a oh, lot, man, and it is painful. It doesn't always feel good, right? Yeah. But I take it as a great sign that she cares about me and she wants the best for me, wow. even if I disagree with her on it. That she's willing to risk the relationship. And and in the same way, we have got to do that with our friends at certain times where we are speaking the truth to them. Uh, If I see a friend who is uh, living a debauched life, a life of sin, I I should be warning them. And uh, even if they get upset with me, I should be warning them. I should be, you know, I'd be willing to have those hard conversations, always letting them know, always reemphasizing, hey, I'm doing this because I love you. Uh, and then at the end of that, just reminding them it, or, or presenting to them, maybe it's for the first time, the, the gospel, 
the good news, right? The good news, Romans 8. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, <laughs> you know? And uh, so I think if, even as you wait and you're patient and you're loving and you're doing all those things, you're also looking for spots where if you've built that right kind of relationship and you've got kind of those deposits in the bank, those relational deposits in the bank, so to speak, you can also take those opportunities to share the truth. Um, you know, I think sometimes th- those those distinctions so between those three sources of doubt are were really helpful for me. Um, there were, I think, I thought all of my doubt was intellectual, and I think for me it started out that way, but it became mm-hmm. emotional partly because I wasn't in a place where I could I could safely share the doubts I was experiencing, and I didn't have knowledge of the resources that could help me at the time. I was in a church situation where great people, but it was a bit anti-intellectual, and they just Mm -hmm. didn't have helpful answers. So I began to hide it, and it turned into emotional doubt, and then began to snowball, and I didn't know how to distinguish between the two, and it just became this awful force in my life. But when I came came into contact with those three things, it helped me. And even now, like I will recognize – if I'm if I'm struggling with doubt, I've, the first thing I ask is, "Man, am I tired? And mm. am I am I overworked?" And and I look at that because sometimes that compounds it. And I'll say, "You know what? I'm going to come back to this when I'm in a better state of mind. I'm not going to read books late into the hour that are really taxing like I used to." All that kind of stuff played a part. But I yeah. think that's really helpful. But related to that, Brett, you know, we have we have situations sometimes with parents and with churches where we, we mean well, but we don't let people doubt in a safe space in the right way. And then on yeah. the other side of that, now there's kind of a, a popular trend to exalt doubting and to have, you know, like the Babylon B said the other day, the, the progressive church hosted the first Q and Q session ever, you know, where we only, <laughs> where we only want questions. How do you, how do you thread the needle between those two? And how do you, t- how do you help us parents and churches these days to create a safe space where people can doubt, but not, not to land there and sit there? You know, one thing you can do is just point people to Jesus um, and, and to the words of Jesus and what Jesus says about truth and how truth is so essential to the mission of Jesus. In fact, he ultimately uh, locates truth in his person, you know, in, in the incarnation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So there are times where Jesus expresses truths very confidently, very, um, uh, very clearly. And what, what it helps us to see, in fact, it, it, when, we, when we look at like John 17, 3, Jesus says eternal life is knowing the one true God. Mm. So our eternity is actually connected to our knowledge of the truth, particularly found in Jesus. So I, I think the clear teaching of Scripture to remind people to, uh, of how vital knowledge and truth is in, in the worldview of Jesus, oh. uh, if you if you uh, if you pay careful attention to what Jesus says, yeah, he, he, he doesn't condemn you for your, your doubts, but he also doesn't just leave you there. Um, he, he wants you to, to find and discover truth that's essential to our relationship with him. And so it's kind of like, you know, the purpose of, a uh, an open mind or a questioning mind is like, uh, you know, similar to an open mouth. It, 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 it's to shut on something solid. You know, G.K. Chesterton said that. And in the same way, yes, you, are, you, you, you can question, you can bring your doubts, but ultimately, what's the end goal? Doubt in and of itself isn't an end goal. Knowledge of the truth is the end goal, to find something to, to, that you can, you can, you know, close that mind on, on something solid that ends up being the, the rock for which you build an entire life on. Um, and so uh, th- there is this, th- look, there's truth out there. We can know it, and it actually leads to flourishing. Mm. The, the God has designed us in a, to, to live a certain way, and, to f- and when we live according to the way that he's designed us, then we flourish as human beings, and that's what God wants for us. And uh, you can't flourish without eventually um, locating the truth and living by that truth. So you have a new, I don't know if it's a new company, but you founded a company called Maven. 
That's correct. And what is the mission of that organization? It looks like you're really gearing towards youth and college-age students, but what is the what is the purpose and mission for Maven? Yeah, Maven exists to help really disciple a new generation of young people in the church uh, to know truth, to know what they believe, why they believe it, why it matters, uh, to pursue goodness. Uh, after you know truth, it, again, that's, it's not just a... Uh, an intellectual thing that's a, that's a key part of it, but we are also uh, human beings that not only have intellect and rationality, but we have will, we have volition, and uh, and so we need to live that out. So we know truth. We want to help raise young people who know truth, pursue goodness, and then uh, the third part is create beauty for the cause of Christ, and and that can look you know, uh, all different ways. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, we want to see young people who then take that, that Christian truth and they see how it applies to every single area of their lives. And so whether they go into the arts and create beauty that points back to the beautiful one, to God himself uh, through the arts, whether it's a business, uh, a business can be a beautiful thing that speaks to the uh, the truth and uh, reality of God and um, uh, whatever it is, whatever area that uh, that they go go off to the university and study, that they would um, they would see how their their Christian faith has something to say about every single area of reality. So that's that's kind of our larger vision is we want to see a new generation of Christian young people who know what they believe, why they believe it, and why it matters, and they live that out. Brett, what do you think the evangelical churches, especially large churches in America, what should they begin to do or do differently? You know, your whole organization is geared towards students and youth. Um, so what, what should a church be doing to not only help answer the questions after doubt arises, but maybe a training and discipleship earlier on so that when questions come, they already have the answers. What do you think the churches can do? Uh, That's a great question. I think we need to be much more proactive. Oh, gosh, there's like 50 things that come to mind when I think about this, because I, uh, to be honest, I think we are, um, I think the church has a lot of work to do. And I, I think, number one, I think churches need to begin to understand just how anti-intellectual they are. Ooh, uh, wow. We are so anti-intellectual. It, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to know even where to start. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think we need to go back to Scripture, recapture a biblical view of the life of the mind, mm-hmm. of knowledge and of truth. And you know, if someone wants a resource, uh, resource on this, I think a great book, a great author, a great thinker to read on this is J.P. Moreland. Oh, yeah. uh, J.P. wrote a couple of books. He wrote a book called Love Your God with All Your Mind, which he cashes out a biblical picture of the mind. But then he also has another great book, Kingdom Triangle, and he talks about the importance of knowledge and the biblical view of knowledge. So that's one place just to start is to, because I think because we're so anti-intellectual, we don't bring the mind into it, then it it actually skews our entire view of the human person and what discipleship should look like. And so I think there's some foundational things like that that, that that we need to put in place. And then we start teaching our kids knowledge of God at the earliest of ages. And the way I've kind of broken this down, just real practically, is kids zero till like fourth grade. So elementary school, pre-K, you're really the focus of your teaching and your discipleship is on the what. At this stage, we need to just pour the truth into them. They need to, to we need to help them understand the knowledge of God, what, what his attributes are, uh, what, you know, even Trinitarian doctrine, uh, salvation by grace alone, these kind of things, you're teaching them the what. Are they going to understand it all? No, that's okay. Uh, you're laying a foundation because then eventually what you're going to do is you're going to build and you're going to add the why. So when they are in middle school, you're really focusing on apologetics and why and answering those those difficult questions for them. And, um, and then... Ultimately, you help them with the how-to, and that's giving them practical opportunities to, okay, engage with these ideas, engage with an unbeliever, um, things like that. And there's all kinds of practical ideas I have on that, but that at least gives a kind of a model of that this actually starts very early on in terms of their training. 
And I would say this, throughout the entire process, you let them ask any question that they ever have. You never shut down kids' questions. You never shut down adults' questions. If they have questions, the place we want them to ask those questions is in our families and in our churches. Because we know if they, they if we shut down their questions, they don't stop asking questions. They just stop asking us questions. Right. So what what would you say to those who might not have the answers? You know, you have volunteers even teaching, you know, three, four, five year olds in children's ministry on a weekend and they feel probably ill equipped. What what should they do? Again, we encourage questions. Obviously they're not gonna have all the answers. What's a good response when you're teaching those children and you don't know the answer? Yeah, there's three words every teacher, every speaker, every leader needs to <laughs> needs to memorize. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and have the humility to say, I don't know. And, you know, we think, oh, uh, somehow this is going to undercut our authority then in the eyes of someone. Uh, but typically when we are able to be honest, uh, I think a lot of people find that very refreshing. And it's a great sign of humility. And we don't leave it at that. We don't say, I don't know. Uh, you know, so what? Who cares? It's, I don't know. But hey, let's journey together. Let's, um, let's figure this out together. And if it's a Sunday school teacher teaching elementary school kids, say, hey, you know, we're going to set aside next week's lesson in the curriculum. And we're going to take, you know, little Johnny's question. It's such an important question. It's a good question. I'm not quite sure how to answer it right now, but I'm going to do some work this week, mm. and maybe I'm going to give you guys some homework, and we're going to come back next week, and then we're going to we're going to look for the truth together on this. Uh, I, I think that's the kind of thing we need to do. That's really good, Brett. Um, well, I know we're at the end of our time here. I have two more questions. If you just got a few more minutes that you could grab with us, would that be doable for you? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, awesome. So my first question is, I know you're out there on the front lines doing this thing with youth and, you know, we travel a lot so we see stuff that's going on. One of the things I'm seeing more recently is this idea like, you know, things aren't as bad as as we think. Like many of the young people are in the church. In fact, I think a guy named Glenn Statton recently wrote a book on the myth of the dying church. And um, I haven't read the book yet, but I do. I see other articles coming out that are saying, you know, people are over exaggerating the dangers of the youth walking out. But when I am coming into contact with people our age and younger, this is anecdotal, of course, but it seems way more pessimistic than some of these readings are because I don't see many of of our fellow believers that are young having biblical worldviews being strong it, it seems I, in fact the other day I was jokingly it, it's not a good joke but I said the fields are ripe for apostasy <laughs> and <laughs> um and so what what do you being out there what do you make of it is should we be concerned for the next generation or are we have we been kind of bought bought into like a, a an over exaggeration of how bad things are uh, out there in the evangelical church right now no, I, this is a really good question because I, I want I also I always want to be careful that we're not alarmist mm-hmm. right. for you know for for just kind of sounding the alarm or for the you know for for its own sake. Uh, but if there is good cause for alarm, <laughs> then we should be alarmist, right? We should be warning people. So as I've looked at this, without going into all the data, but looking at a number of, of surveys. It seems to me that it's reasonable to say that uh, the the church is bleeding its young people in particular uh, at pretty high rates. And now you can quibble over whether or not these are you know genuine Christian kids or if they've just attended church a couple of times every month, you know all those kind of things. But the point is, I think there's enough data out there that shows that we are losing young people. Uh, so either we're not we're not helping them to experience true conversion. We're not maybe giving them a clear picture of the gospel. We're not helping them to answer those deep questions. But it seems seems to me that we are really. Um, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're just bleeding out a lot of our young people. And those that are even remaining, I think what they end up doing is because we don't give them good, proper training. They don't have a good worldview. Now, with all these issues that they're facing, these cultural issues, that 
really make their Christianity seem outdated or implausible. And I'm thinking about like all the stuff on gender and human sexuality in particular, right? Those are the two big cultural issues that that go uh, just straight against the Christian worldview and the Christian view of these things. Well, the culture keeps pounding it and saying, you know, hey, love is love. And people, uh, you know, are what they feel they are and these kind of things that we're not training young people well enough. We're not doing any clear thinking on this stuff. We're not helping them to see these things through a Christian worldview. We're not answering the why questions. So all they really have is, well, because the Bible kind of says so. And that comes in conflict with this cultural message that's pounding them day in and day out on social media, you know, from their peers, from their education system, that it slowly chips away at their confidence in the Christian faith. So even if we have uh, a number of young people who stay in the church and stay involved, a lot of them don't have a lot of confidence that it's actually true. In fact, I was just, uh, I just spoke at a, uh, a, a a pretty prominent missions organization recently, and they were telling me that a number of young people, kind of college students or fresh out of college who come and take part in their, they've got kind of a short-term, six-month missions experience, they say they find that a lot of young people do that as almost like a last-ditch effort to save their faith. Hmm. Because they don't have the, the the foundation, and so they think, oh, maybe if I can go and have this experience, this will really, you know, um, kind of solidify it for me. And so, even if well, now I think we're seeing a lot of young people leave the church, but even if we weren't, even the young people who are staying in the church don't have a very solid foundation. So I think it's actually bad news on both ends right now. And I, I, my assessment through looking at studies through um, working with young people all across the country and churches all across the country. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I try not to be pessimistic in this. I, I'm trying to offer this as a, just a realistic assessment, but I think things are actually worse than we even realize. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the church is ill-equipped to, uh, to kind of deal with the culture and disciple its young people right now and uh it's going to take some it's probably going to take some challenging things in the culture to wake us up no i actually think that's pretty spot on that's that's the sense i get as well Mm -hmm. um well last question this one is more for our patreon listeners so it won't go as public so you don't have to worry about it i got a funny question for you (laughs) because i know you deal in youth culture a lot so um Kanye. Oh, boy. Oh, <laughs> give, <laughs> give, give us your take. He went there. Baby. So What's, oh, and all these gosh. celebrity guys, like, yeah. you know, give us some wisdom. How do we, you Just know, it's, Bieber, it's, yeah. it's probably not the questions we should be asking, but we get this question all the time. People want us to oh, weigh in on that. these things. And so <laughs> give us some wisdom yes. on this. Well, we're so glad that Brett Kunkel joined us on the show this week. Just a reminder, like Seth mentioned, he is an ongoing speaker at the Impact 360 camps every summer. So we encourage you to check him out there. You can also follow Brett on Twitter at Brett Kunkel and check out his organization, Maven, Seeking Truth, Goodness, and Beauty. You'll find links to all those in the show notes. And we'd love to hear from you. You can interact with us on Instagram and Twitter at FreemindFM is the username. And on Facebook at FreemindPodcastFM. And you can even email us, podcast at freemind.fm. We'd love to hear from you and interact with you there. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Maybe millions of people.